Abraham Lincoln used to share uh, a few different versions of, of this riddle, and then he would immediately give the answer. The riddle goes this way. He would say, how many legs would a calf have if you called his tail a leg? And then he would answer it. The answer is four. Because calling a tail a leg doesn't make it a leg. Now, our culture seems to have forgotten that simple wisdom. Because for the most part, what we want to be true is what we consider to be true. And, and we could be talking about a, a man who wants to consider himself to be a woman. Or we could be talking about the way we consume information or, or news. We tend to seek out what we already think is true. But what we think is true doesn't necessarily mean it's true. A lie is a lie, no matter if everyone believes it. And the truth is the truth, even if no one believes it. Well, we're five chapters almost into a study of the book of Galatians, uh, which is an impassioned defense of the truth of the gospel by the Apostle Paul. Paul traveled to a region of the world known as Galatia then. He planted these churches. He preached the gospel. And he has received word that his dear friends in Galatia are being led astray um, by false teachers that, that are offering a slightly different version of the gospel from Paul's. But Paul said right away in this book, there's really no such thing. Because even a slightly different gospel means it's not the gospel. Paul taught in brief that this is the way eternal life works. Paul said that believing in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ brings justification. Justification is when God declares someone righteous. That's done, Paul said, by faith alone. That's what causes God to see me differently is when I believe in Jesus Christ and he justifies me. He chooses to see me differently. And that, Paul said, will result in increased obedience in my life. Paul's opponents in Galatia, however, change the order of those things. They say that, yes, you must believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but then you must increase your obedience, and together the two of those things will result in justification. That's what makes God look on you with, with favor. Faith plus increased obedience. That's what Paul is warning against. Those things don't sound all that different. But to Paul, they were. The problem, the debate, focuses on where my righteousness comes from. For Paul's teaching, righteousness is a, a gift of God's grace that comes to those who believe. 
apart from works, before there's any change in behavior. And for Paul's opponents, they would have taught us your behavior plays a role in whether or not God can consider you righteous. The, the idea that the error, the problem is the error of legalism, which I've been defining through our study this way. Uh, legalism is the, is the idea that uh, my behavior plays a role in my justification. God declaring me, thinking of me as righteous. Here's a bit of a new one. Legalism is the idea that as a Christian, I can be more through my behavior than I already am by God's grace. When, when I think, when I'm convinced, yes, I'm saved by a gift of God's grace, but I can be more through my effort. I've stepped into legalism. Last week, Paul warned us three very serious warnings about that mindset. Paul says it'll make Christ useless to us. Uh, It will sever us from him. It will cause us to fall from grace. If you want to know what those things mean, you have to go back and listen to or watch last week's sermon. We don't have time this morning. But this week, Paul is going to say a legalistic outlook will actually make things we think are obedience, not obedience at all. It will be like a calf's tail that we call a leg. Let's read our passage and I'll show you what I'm talking about. This is Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to throw in verse 6, even though we studied it last week, because I'm going to refer to it a time or two. So Galatians 5, 6 reads this way, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love is what matters. Verse 7, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will adopt no other view But the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. We start in verses 7 and 8, and that's where Paul says that legalism isn't obedience. Paul warns the Galatians here, what you're being told is obedience isn't actually obedience. He he starts this way. Paul uses a race analogy, a track and field illustration. He used this several times. Paul says that you started off running so well, my friends, up there in Galatia. When, When Paul was in Galatia, he preached the gospel, it was received. They believed in Jesus Christ. They were justified. And then, as was on the screen, there was an increase in obedience. They took off on a Christian life in the direction their lives should aim. Paul saw this happening. He just said in verse 6, the only thing that matters is your faith working its way out of you in love. 
Then he says, you were running well. So he's seen that happen in the Galatians. This is a good place to remind ourselves that coming to faith in Christ is the starter pistol of the Christian life. It is not the finish line. Um, It is easy. We want to see people come to Christ to become believers. But that's not the finish line of the Christian life. It's the starter pistol. We've got a race to continue to run. And Paul says, you are running well, and then he continues with the track and field analogy And when he says, who hindered you? There's a really cool Greek word that he uses there, uh, egkopto. Um, And we would say cut off. This is the word you would use to describe a cheater in a race who does something illegal to keep someone from passing them, to cut in front of them illegally. Paul says, you are running well and someone has cut you off. But then Paul leaves the track and field analogy because this isn't a game. Paul says, these false teachers, you were running so well, but these false teachers have cut you off and pay special attention here to what they're trying to do. They cut you off or hindered you from obeying the truth. Now, I've never been to Galatia. I certainly wasn't there when whatever was happening that led Paul to write this letter. But I'd be willing to bet my house that if we could go back in time and ask those false teachers about their teachings, I'll bet you they would say this, what is the big deal? We are just trying to get these people to what? To obey the truth. Let's think through this. What were they trying to get these new Christians to obey? The law. The law of Moses, which is in here. Is it true? Yes. Yes. Is it good? Yes. Did Paul say the law was perfect? Yes. So they would say, all we're trying to do is get people to obey the truth. But Paul says... They're actually trying to keep you from obeying the truth. How can both of those things be true? Here's how. Legalism is not obeying the truth. When I become legalistic in my obedience, even though I've identified some good things to obey, when I'm obeying them because I think it will make me more in God's eyes in, or in other people's eyes or in my own heart, I'm, that I am not becoming obedient to lots of individual truths. More so than that, I'm becoming obedient. I'm obeying one giant lie, which is that in my effort, I can become more than what God gifted me with when I believed. The truth of the gospel is that by believing in Jesus Christ, faith alone, and his sacrifice on the cross, I'm placed in Christ. When that happens, my obedience before God becomes his. I can't improve upon it. I can't degrade it. It just is and it's mine because he gave it to me 
The lie of legalism is somehow I've still got to do more for God to really think I'm actually, really think I'm righteous. In verse 8, Paul says, this persuasion did not come from God. I mean, it can't be much plainer than that. Even though, I mean, the law is good. How did Jesus say the law could be summed up? Love God with all your heart. Love people the way you love yourself. Jesus said that. Are we still supposed to be about that? Even though if I'm trying to do that through my own effort, or if my faith is, is bringing, me, bringing that out of me because I believe it's best, even though the results outwardly might look the same, Paul would say one of those is not obedience and one of those is. The motivation, the why of our obedience is of utmost importance. Why do I obey? Why do you try to obey? It makes all the difference. We can see this in the Gospels where Jesus, he'll, he'll say, guys, did you see that person give that offering at the temple? That was a complete waste of time for that guy. Was giving an offering wrong? Of course not. There's another time where Jesus says, man, let your light so shine before men that people see your good works and glorify God. And a paragraph later, he says, be really careful letting other people see your good works. What makes the difference? Motivation. The why. What motivates your obedience? True faith should motivate obedience out of me, but, but this way. It should start with this. My heart should tell the rest of me, look at how God loved you, Maxwell. Think about it. He loved you completely when you were completely unlovable. It's not that God somehow knew you were somehow going to improve yourself and thought, well, he said in the future someday, he's going to try, so I guess I can love him. No! While we were yet sinners, enemies. Look at how God loved you when you were completely unacceptable. He, he, I, and then I just love the one who justified me then by his grace and understand he still justifies me now by his grace he doesn't think i'm righteous because how much i've improved he thinks i'm righteous because i bear the righteousness of his son and i love him and i trust him a god who would not withhold his son from me surely he will not withhold all things paul said you know what that means? It means if he would give me Jesus Christ destroyed on the cross, why would I think he's holding out on me in some other area of my life? He will give me every desire of my heart the way it's supposed to be given one day. Why would I try to chase what I want outside of what he says is best? 
and my love for this God that I trust works its way out of me in loving him and loving others in the way that he loved me. Is that how your obedience is motivated? Or is it more for you like, I want God to like me at the end of this day. So I'm going to try really hard. And then I either convince myself I wasn't all that bad or I'll feel like a total failure. I want God to like me and if I'm obedient enough, that's how I can get there. Are you just trying to gain the acceptance from God you've always wanted, the acceptance from your own heart you've always wanted, the acceptance from someone else you've already always wanted and you're using your self-discipline and effort to get there? Because that's a losing strategy. And Paul says, you're going to wind up doing a bunch of stuff you call obedience that's not even obedience. Maybe it comes down to this question. Who do you really believe is responsible? Who do you really believe is the responsible party for your relationship with God? And I use that word intentionally. Who do you believe is the responsible party for your relationship with God? Is it you? Is it God? Is it a combination of both? I would submit to you this is not an earthly relationship. God, we would all agree with this. God established a relationship with you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God established a relationship with you by an act of his amazing grace. You didn't deserve to be brought into a good relationship with your creator, right? He made you lovable to himself, acceptable to himself, adequate in his eyes. He did that. When you believed in Jesus, he justified you, he made you adequate, right? So then what? Does your sin ruin the lovability you have before God after you become a believer, when it wasn't powerful enough to keep him from loving you when you were at your worst, does it become powerful enough that God can't love you today because of what you've done? Are you no longer adequate in God's eyes unless, and then you can fill in your own blank with whatever unless is important to you. Does your failure make you unlovable, even though if that were the case, he never could have loved you to begin with? Is this what you think your relationship with God is like? He saved you by his grace. He washed your sins away. But then, every day or every week or every month, he has to decide whether or not he can kind of stand to be around you. Like God isn't really ready to fully commit to this relationship until he sees how trustworthy you are with this gift you've been given. Family, listen. That's when God committed to this relationship. At the cross. He's in this thing. 
your relationship was established and is based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ that you bear, you hold by a free gift of God's grace. He gave you the moment you believed. And if your relationship was, is, or ever will be based on your ability to be obedient, you will never have a good relationship with God. Because his standards are way higher than your ability to reach. All of your sins would be way too much for him to be cool with you. This persuasion that your relationship with God is up to you and your obedience does not come from the one who called you into a relationship with him when you were at your worst. Now, does that mean now nothing I do matters? Of course not. Of course not. What you do matters, but, but matters for what? And look up a verse, what actually matters? What matters is not, how am I doing all these things I'm trying to obey? What matters is, is your faith working its way out of you in love for him for your, for, and for others. That matters. Sin matters because it still kills and destroys and causes all kinds of pain and it will not get you what it tells your heart it will get you. Is your relationship with God, your obedience, is, is it due to the love you have for your gracious Father and your trust that what he says is right or are you trying to use your obedience to earn the love of your father. You know, it's a little bit like, I mean, it's got to come from the inside out. When you were young, you lived in your parents' house, and your parents told you, you got to come home at a certain time. No, you can't date whoever you want. And, uh, you know, you can't be out all night partying. You got to go to bed at a decent hour. And you're young, and you thought, my parents couldn't be more lame. I can't wait to get out of here. So you get out of there, you get out of there, you think you're free, you do all kinds of ignorant stuff until enough stuff burns down in your life and you start going, you know what I think might be better? <laughs> I think if I like am only loyal to one person and uh, I, I don't go out partying all the time, I'm not getting drunk, I get a decent night's sleep and I, and I get up and be responsible in the morning. You know, I kind of want to do that now because it's better. One is obligation. One is because I'm convinced it's best. In verse 9, Paul approaches the same thing with a little different illustration. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Just a little yeast leavens the whole lump. I'm not much of a baker, but I, I understand if you put some live or active yeast in a, in, a, in a bread recipe, you don't have to put it on every square millimeter, right? It will spread. It permeates. Paul says legalism works the same way. It's very common to have this bad idea about the Christian life. There's these two things are the opposite, and the Christian life is figuring out how to balance these things. Okay? On one side, 
is legalism. This idea, I've got to be obey, I've got to obey my way into God's good graces. That's wrong. But the other side is license, licentiousness. The idea that nothing matters. I can sin whatever sin I want to sin. I'll abuse God's grace because the real life is out here apart from that stuff. That's false too. And so there's this false idea that the Christian life is figuring out how to balance legalism and license. That's false. It's false. We'll talk about why in a couple of weeks. But for now, if that's our idea, here's where we will land. You know, if we're trying to balance these things, surely it's safer to err on the side of legalism, right? If we're going to have a little of one or the other, it's surely safer to have a little bit more legalism. What's wrong with a little legalism? Because after all, all I'm trying to do is get myself and others to obey the truth. See what I did there? Because Paul just said in verse 7, that's what they're doing and they're not going to make you obey the truth. They're going to make you obey the lie that you can be righteous. Neither of those things are true. They're actually both my flesh and my effort. And they're both wrong. If I try to balance legalism and license and the Christian life is getting closer and closer to the legalism side, even what I call obedience won't be obedience. You know why? Because it'll be selfish. What will be the motivation for my obedience? I'm trying to get what I want. Even though now what I used to want was just uh, pleasing all my sinful desires. I found out that was wrong. So now what I really want is for God to like me. So I'm going to try legalistic obedience so that God will like me. Bad news, that's not going to work either. The only thing that matters is, is faith working its way out in love. When my, when my, when my obedience is legalistic, it's for me. Because I want God to like me. At the end of the day, I want to be able to sleep. I, 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 I. Real faith says, I want what's best for you. I want to love someone else who doesn't deserve it and can't pay me back the way he loved me. Now, starting the next time I preach, which by the way, uh, Brett's gone this morning. Uh, Emily's sister's getting baptized. Brett's going to preach the next couple of weeks. You still have to come get here. And if that was legalistic, I guess we'll work on that later. But where we're, where we're moving ahead from here, Paul is going to begin to flesh out. Uh, that's probably a bad way to phrase this. Paul is going to work out, hash out what this Christian life is supposed to look like. And you know what it's going to look like? Obedience to the law. Grace does not mean obedience is bad. But how do we get there? What is our motivation? Our obedience starts with this truth. 
I have the Holy Spirit inside of me. He came there just when I believed, and he is begging me to call the God of the universe my Abba. Like this, this really close, intimate relationship I have with him. Listen, we've always got that if we're believers. The, the old saying is if, if there's something wrong, if there's distance between you and God, you are the one who moved. Okay? God is not looking at your behavior and recoiling from you and backing up because he can't stand to be around you. No! What he's saying is, why are you doing that out there? There's no real hope out there. It's not going to give you what you want. What he wants you to, he's right there. He loves you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Why? Because you bear the righteousness of his son. It, the sin breaks his heart because you're chasing something he knows is bad for you. It's not something that makes him hate you because he hated him in your place. That's done. When I think it's up to my obedience to give me a relationship with God, to maintain my relationship with God, to enjoy a relationship with God, then I have a massively exaggerated view of my own obedience. I mean, think about what you're saying. And listen, I grew up this way. I believe this. My, the responsibility for me being in a relationship with God is my obedience. But listen to what I'm saying. When I get to the point, if I ever get to the point where I can say I'm in a good relationship with God, why is it? It's because I've stacked up so much obedience that me and God are like colleagues now. My relationship with Him is because He and I have so much in common. Do you hear how ridiculous that is? There's never going to be one second of one day for all of eternity that you're in a relationship with God because of who you are. It's because of His grace. Always. And when I get that mixed up, if my view of this Christian life says my behavior has to be such so I can enjoy a, rela a, a relationship with God, I would submit to you that is the very definition of self-righteous. Why am I okay with God? Because of what I've done myself today. We should never look at self-righteousness and call it obedience because Jesus never did. The basis of our relationship with God is righteousness. It's just not ours. When I champion grace as we go through this book, it's not because I have a low opinion of the importance of sin. I would say the other people who disagree with me do. Because my opinion says, not for one second are you ever good enough to enjoy a relationship with God. Because there's some sin you're ignoring or that you don't think's that big of a deal. God thinks it's a big deal and he still loves you. They're all a big deal. That's why it must be grace. Or we don't have the love of God. In verse 10, 
which didn't even make the screen at this point, but Paul just expresses confidence that his friends, I know you're going to choose grace. Because why would you choose any different? I'll tell you why, because we want to do it. But then verse 11 takes a little more explanation. It reads this way, But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? And that's really confusing because Paul never preached circumcision. And that's not what he was persecuted for. Remember, when we, when we read the epistles of the New Testament, we're reading someone else's mail. This is one of those places where we have to infer what's been going on. There were times when Paul, like at least one time in the book of Acts, Paul told a young man named Timothy, you better get yourself circumcised. And when Paul was in Jewish communities, Paul didn't tell Jews they couldn't uh, circumcise their male children. Paul was fine with that. But he didn't preach circumcision as something you had to have before God could like you. Okay? And apparently the, the, Paul's opponents in Galatia were making this argument. Hey, listen, Galatian Christians, we want you to know something about Paul. When Paul's with us Jews, he actually advocates for circumcision. Now he says, you don't need it. That's why you can't trust Paul. And Paul says, listen, guys, there's never been one second that I preached circumcision as something that would be required for righteousness. If I did, we wouldn't be having this problem because those guys would love me. I would not be being persecuted if in Jewish communities I told them you have to do the law, you have to do circumcision. Paul said that would amount to this, removing or abolishing the stumbling block of the cross. Here's another great Greek word. Right here where this says stumbling block. Um, your Bible might say offense. It's the Greek word scandalon. Uh, and it's a trap. A, the, a scandalon, a stumbling block. You know the part of a mouse trap that you put like the peanut butter on? And if that poor, that poor little critter pushes down on, on that lever, whack, he gets it. He had it coming too, let me tell you. But that's a scandalon. Okay, and it, it, it's, a, it's a word metaphor. It, it's what traps people. It's what offends people. This word scandalon is where we get our word scandalous or scandal. Do you know why people can't accept the idea of grace? Because it's far too scandalous. And it is. And Paul says, there's no way I would ever remove the scandal from the cross. The scandal from grace. I don't mind that some of our Bibles translate that word offense. Because that's kind of what this means. There's nothing more offensive than grace. There's nothing more offensive to the cross. It'll offend everybody. We know how the cross offends sort of non-religious people. Because the cross, the grace of God that comes only through the cross, says there is only one way that anyone's ever going to get to eternal life, and that is by believing in the cross of Jesus Christ. Is that offensive? Yeah. It's offensive to a lot of people. 
But grace offends more religious folks too. It offends the devout. It offends the practitioners. It offends the moral. Because it, you know what it tells those folks? You're not, you're not religious enough. You're not moral enough. You're not doing well enough. It still says, if, in fact, what Paul just got done saying is if that's what you depend on for God to like you, he doesn't like you. His wrath is still on you. Paul says, preaching any kind of obedience as a requirement for righteousness would remove the offense, the scandal of the cross. And that's something Paul will not do. And then Paul ends with what has been called, one commentator called this, uh, the crudest and rudest of all Paul's existing statements. And I'm sure he is true. Uh, Here's what Paul wrote. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. It's way worse than this. (laughs) Here's what Paul means. Paul is basically saying those men who are teaching you, you must undergo circumcision. Hey, if cutting a little bit of skin off pleases God, I, why don't they just cut everything off? The Jerusalem Bible translates it this way. Tell those who are disturbing you, I would like to see their knife slip. <laughs> uh, now I share that with you not because I find it hilarious, though I do. Uh, just because you can hear how serious Paul is about this, how frustrated he is with this, because Paul knows legalism sounds like obedience. It sounds so obedient, so spiritual, so so good, and it's not. Just because some might call it those things doesn't make it those things. It's the calf's tail. We call a leg. Church, I want us to grow in obedience. I do. It is vital that we obey the truth. I just know because Paul teaches us so clearly, legalism won't get us there. It will make us obey one giant lie no matter how many individual truths it looks like we are obeying. Each of us, we have to start by obeying this truth. My position before God, my justification with God, 100% by Jesus, 0% by me. God's grace is the reason I'm in a relationship with God. God's grace is what holds me in a relationship with God. God's grace is what maintains that relationship with God. And if it weren't for grace, I couldn't stay in a relationship with God for half a day. I'll give you the credit for the time when you're sleeping in case you're a really deep sleeper. Outside of that, you're in real trouble. That is why the why of our obedience is so important. What motivates our obedience is important. Paul wanted to see Christ 
formed in his friends, the Galatians. I want to see Christ formed in my own life and yours. That will look like our faith working its way out of us in love. That's what matters. And it has to be a very inside-out relational obedience. We're not trying to clear some bar of behavioral obedience that allows a relationship to take place. I was reading um, A.W. Tozer uh, this week. I actually added this to this sermon because I wrote it a couple weeks ago. But Tozer said this. Oh, sorry. Hey, help me out there, Seth. I misclicked. Sorry, this one's not on the screen. The next one is. Tozer wrote this after he said, God cannot look at your sin and sort of celebrate it, be okay with it. But then he writes this, Christ in his atonement has removed the bar to the divine fellowship. And now all believing souls are objects of God's delight. I want to read that sentence again. In Christ, all believing souls are objects of God's delight. If you're not able to agree with that, it's because you believe your obedience is what leads to God's delight. And it's His. We obey because God accepts us. What did John say? We love because He loved us first. That's always the crux of this. There's never one moment where I want to love someone else or love God or love myself some way so that God will like me or love me. That's over. But I want to love you because he loved me. He loved me when I didn't deserve it. So just because I can convince myself you don't deserve it does not let me off the hook. Our obedience happens more and more as we appreciate this remarkable fact. God loves me because I'm in Christ. And finally, we need to embrace the scandal of grace. We love scandals. As a culture, we love scandals. We can't get enough of scandals. I don't care who you are, uh, what side of the aisle, there's a scandal for you, right? It might be Trump's indictment right? And what he did with those documents. Oh man, how could we ever let some low down, dirty scalawag like that ever in the White House? Or if you don't like that one, you like this one. Hunter's laptop and the cocaine in the White House and how the Biden crime family. And oh, it's so scandalous. How could we ever let some low down, dirty, rotten scalawag like that in the White House, right? We love some scandal. Listen, chew on this one for a while. I got a better one for you. The holy, righteous God of the universe loves you. If you believe in Jesus Christ and understand that is the only way he ever could. It is scandalous. And it's our hope. And when we embrace that scandal that he loves me, we believe him when he tells us. We don't keep a God like that at a distance. The God we keep at a distance is one we think won't won't approve of us, won't like us unless we're obedient. We'll keep that God away from us. But if you love him and you trust him, you love him back 
and you trust him. More and more you'll trust him not to steer you wrong. You won't. You'll go less and less outside of what he has told you is best to get your cup filled in your life. You begin to love others like him, and that's when obedience actually becomes obedience. And this is the part where I usually say, let's pray, and we're going to. But this prayer was in that Tozer book I was reading this week. This is his prayer. We're going to use it as a model for ours. Here's what he said about the love of God. Praying to God, he said, Oh God, if nothing in us can win your love, nothing in the universe can prevent you from loving us. Think about that for a second. Do you believe that? If nothing on earth could make God love you to begin with, why do you think what you've done this week can make him stop loving you? Thy love is uncaused and undeserved. You yourself are the reason for the love which we, with which we are loved. You know why God loves you? Because he's God and he decided to love you. Help us to believe the intensity the eternity of the love that, ha that has found us. Then love will cast out fear and our troubled hearts will be at peace, trusting not in what we are, but in what thou hast declared thyself to be. Let's pray. God, there was nothing that could have made you love us, love me, but be, once you decided to, and I believed in Jesus Christ, there's nothing in the universe that could keep you from loving me, including me. Help us believe what you say is true, that you love us intensely, eternally. Because when we are sure of your love as a part of your character, it's not that we will go nuts sinning all kinds of sins. We will stay with the one we are confident loves us. Then our troubled hearts will be at peace. Help us to trust not in what we are, but in, what, in who you are and what you promise. Thanks for loving us first. We love you back. Grow our love for you and others that our obedience might become actual, real-life, honest-to-goodness obedience. Amen. Stand up with us and we'll finish our time together.